Thanks, Andrew. It's nice of Andrew to wear the same jeans as me. Even though I texted him this morning and asked, what are you wearing? He never responded. Well, um, as Alan said earlier this morning, my name is Andrew Clausen. I'm one of the pastoral fellows, associate pastors here at Christ Community. Um, I'm really thankful just to open up God's word with you this morning and um, just see how the gospel applies to our lives. Um, it's been a real joy just to be with you these last two years. I probably will say that. I'll probably stop multiple times and just say that. Just know that that's because I love you. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, so, you know, a week ago we were in Denver. We were visiting this church. It was a great time. And if you've ever been in Denver or a like city, you look around when you're in a city like that, and what do you see? You see mountains, right? It's wonderful. I mean, it's just wonderful. I love the mountains. I love backpacking. I love getting in the mountains and doing fun things because there are... You see what I just did there? You see what I did there? Tom does that. Oh, my gosh! I'm becoming Tom. This is awesome. Um, we'll, we'll try to not do that. Um, you know, when you get into the mountains, you see just the goodness of, of what God has made in his creation, right? Many of us, when we're, when we're, when we're in the mountains, we, we, we have this sense of awe, this sense of, of reverence, this sense of, of the goodness of what God has done just in his creation, right? But then some of us, we, we, we see the mountains and and there's a sense of fear, whether it's, it's a fear of heights or a fear of, of the exercise, you know, the, 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 the volume of, of oxygen we need in order to actually climb a 14er or something like that. Or, or maybe it's we, we've gotten stuck on a mountain hillside, right, uh, when the afternoon storm rolls around. And we know how bad that is. How many of you have ever done that? You've been hiking in 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a, a storm rolls in. It's a bad deal, right? So fear might be your response to a mountain, Right? And, and many people, I would assume many people probably living in Denver even, having the mountains constantly around them, having, having enjoyed the goodness of them at one time, maybe have grown apathetic to the goodness of what is just right at their front doorstep. Well, our text this morning is about two mountains in particular where God reveals himself to his people. Our text in Hebrews 12 this morning is about two specific mountains that are very important in the life of God's people. And so we're going to look at those things. We're going to look at not only those two mountains, but then how we are to respond to the truth presented in those mountains. Before we do that, why don't I pray for us, and then we'll jump into God's word together, okay? Father, we ask in this time, Lord, we ask very um, boldly, Lord, that you would reveal yourself in your word here this morning. Lord, we know that where your word is, Lord, you are. Lord, we ask in this time that you would open our ears, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts to the goodness of what your word says here in this text this morning. Father, we ask that you would help us to see what you are saying, that we would listen with an obedient ear. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I want to give you just a quick kind of um, mental outline for where we're going to go, okay? In verses 18 to 24 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, that was kind of backwards, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, we're going to look at these two mountains, okay? And we're going to ask two questions of, of the mountains. It's weird. I, I typically don't go to the mountains and ask questions, but that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to ask two questions. The first is, 
what are these mountains? Okay, the most basic question. What are these mountains? What do they represent? What are they all about? Why are they there? The second question we're going to ask is, why do they matter? What's their significance? What's the weight behind them, okay? Then after that, in verses 25 through 29, we're going to look at just how we, as, as the people of God, should respond to the truth presented in this picture of two mountains, okay? So that's where we're going to go. So look with me. If you have your Bibles, please open to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24 is where I'm going to start. If you don't have a Bible, we have some kind of in the, in the back, um, kind of by the doors. Feel free to go grab one. No one's going to laugh at you. We'd rather you be reading your text. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. Keep it. It's probably not even the nicest Bible. We probably have better Bibles we can give you. I'll find one. Come find me afterwards. Anyways. Let's turn to our text, Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. These two mountains are, as I said, two places where God revealed himself to his people. And the first mountain, though it's not um, explicitly said, is Mount Sinai, okay? The first mountain is Mount Sinai. The second mountain is, is Mount Zion, okay? Let's talk about these for a second. Mount Sinai first, okay? The first mountain, verses 18 to 21. Mount Sinai represented God's old covenant. It represented the exodus, right? And the exodus was kind of the, 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 the governing framework, the paradigm for which God's people understood their redemption through God. So they just had, had kind of witnessed, you know, the 10 plagues with Pharaoh, where all these crazy things are happening. The water turns to blood. There's gnats and boils. And I mean, it's just wild what's going on. And they had just experienced that. And God delivered them from Egypt, from their place of, of bondage and slavery. God had delivered them from those things. And, and they're traipsing around in the wilderness. And Pharaoh comes with his chariots. And God delivers them yet again through the Red Sea, right? And now they're standing at the, at the foot of a mountain. They're standing at the foothills of a mountain called Sinai. Sinai represents this old covenant, this old way of doing things, um, kind of God's people in the Old Testament, okay? This is an important mountain. Now, let's talk about Zion. It says there in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is kind of another, another name for another. My son says another. <laughs> I'm learning from everybody. Um, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. Specifically, kind of the city of David section of Jerusalem. And, and it represents kind of this time, this place where, where God will restore his presence to his people. This time where, where God will restore all things in the new heaven and the new earth, where God's restoration is total and complete, all-encompassing. 
So Zion, in many ways, is kind of the, the new way of doing things, the thing to look forward to, the thing to think about as we yearn and long for God's, God's presence being restored to his people. And the text is, is, is comparing the two and yet also contrasting the two. The comparisons are obvious, right? They're both mountains. <laughs> the contrasts are stronger in many ways, right? So we see in Sinai that, that, that God is veiled, in a cloud and in smoke, right? And yet on Zion, Jesus is clearly named as the mediator of this new covenant. Jesus is there, right? At Sinai, God's voice is, is garbled by thunderclap, right? The people have to approach the mountain and essentially eavesdrop to hear what God is saying to Moses, and they can't even tell what he's saying. Moses has to come down the mountain and give the word to the people. But at Zion... The voice is clear. It speaks loudly, speaks louder than the blood of Abel. We'll get to that in a minute, because that's weird language. At Sinai, the people respond with fear. God's presence elicits fear, and his word solicits silence. And yet at Sinai, excuse me, at Zion, God's presence brings a level of faith, right? And joy and delight at the word of God. So these two mountains, we've answered the first question. What are the two mountains? The two mountains are, are Sinai in one hand and Zion in the other, kind of the old way of doing things, the new way of doing things, okay? First question answered. Now, let's look at why do the mountains matter? And here's where it gets fun, okay? Why do the mountains matter? Set that right there. First, these mountains tell us where we are at. These mountains actually give us a picture for not only who we are, but where exactly we are at. You see it there in verse 22. It says, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. This is not just speaking to the people who received the letter to the Hebrews. This is speaking to you and to me, to everyone who has experienced the goodness of God's glory in the gospel. We have come to Zion. That language of you have come is used over and over and over again in, in the book of Hebrews, but it's usually translated, you have drawn near, right? Do you remember that as we read the book of Hebrews? You have drawn near. In, in chapter 4 of Hebrews, it says, with confidence we have drawn near to the throne of grace. In chapter 7, it says that Jesus saves to the uttermost, those who have drawn near, and other places as well. So we are the ones who have come to this mountain of God's goodness. And then this mountain is, is bound up with, with God's redeeming work and its effects in our life, okay? So we're going to walk through verses 22 and following just a little bit just to understand what's going on there. It says, Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the place where God meets his people, where God's presence comes to dwell amongst his people. Essentially, this is where God does relationship. In verse 22, it says, the innumerable angels in festal gathering. The angelic hosts are not only waiting to see people come into salvation with God, but they're, they're waiting in the, in the celebration hall. They're waiting to usher God's people into the kingdom, the throne room of the king. In verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn, that's those who, who the gospel has afforded salvation. And in verses 23 and 24, obviously, God is pictured the judge of all, 
But then Jesus, we get this clear picture of the mediator of the new covenant, the one who brings this salvation to those who are at this new mountain, at this place where God meets with his people, where God does relationship. Friends, you are not at Sinai. You are at Zion. We get a picture in this text of what the Christian life looks like. And it's one where, where a future kingdom affords a present reality. It's where the kingdom of God bound up in eternity actually influences and affects our living in the everyday and the now and the here. And this is the picture we get in Zion is that we are not at Sinai, we're not at this place where we, we tremble with fear at the word of God, where we, we have to try to look through the smoke and, and figure out who he is. No, he has revealed himself clearly to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Friends, you are not at Sinai, but you are at Zion. These mountains matter because we now know where we are at. Second, these mountains matter because they tell us about ourselves. They not only tell us kind of where we're at, you know, at the foothills of the mountain of God. They tell us about ourselves, right? We get this picture in the Old Testament of God's people wandering around doing all these crazy things. And we get a picture of who we are in them in many ways, right? Same with the disciples. We see Jesus interacting with his disciples. And we get this picture of just how stubborn and foolish sheep we are. And we get this picture here of us as well. The mountains tell us about ourselves. So similar, similar to God's people in the Old Testament, we let fear pilot our hearts. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. Then look at verse 21. So terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, I tremble with fear. Fear's a funny thing, right? Fear has a way of, of, of actually convincing us that good things are evil, that beautiful things are ugly. As fear kind of buys up real estate on our hearts, it, it, it helps us see things we should delight in as something we should really dread. For example, when, we were, when Greer and I were first married, we're preparing to move to seminary to Chicago. Our house is on the market, um, and, and, and um, we find out that we are pregnant with our son Owen. Praise God, right? That's a good thing. Guess what our first response was when we found out we were pregnant with Owen as our house was literally in negotiating, li literally on contract? Fear. Isn't that ridiculous? The first thing we do is fear what may be because God has brought this blessing to our family. And yet, fear has a way of working its way into the corners of our heart and infecting how we understand things. And yet, the gospel, the gospel here we see transforms fear into reverence and awe. If you look down at the end of the passage, we'll see as we get, uh, get to the end that Verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. There's a goodness to understanding the seriousness and, and weightiness of the mountains, right? People die in the mountains all the time. Well, similar with God, there's a seriousness to God. There's a reverence, a, a holy awe to respect his, his magnitude, his power, 
right? The last part of this, of this whole passage says our God is a consuming fire. There's a goodness to a certain type of fear. And yet, God's people responded to the goodness of God coming and revealing himself to them with fear. And the picture of the new mountain that the gospel affords is one where, where we see God's goodness and we ask for more. Where fear is not our response to his coming and showing us what life may be, but where faith is the outcropping of seeing who he is and what he has done. So fear is one way in which we learn about ourselves here in this text. The second thing that this, this, these mountains tell us about ourselves is we tend to ask for less of God's word instead of more. We tend to ask for less of God's word instead of more. Look with me at verse 19. In the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. We have this tendency sometimes to wish that God hasn't, hadn't actually spoken on something. Right? For example, Hebrews will oftentimes talk about our sinfulness. And we, we love to talk about our sinfulness, right? I mean, if there's anything we really like to think about and talk about and hear God's perspective on is our sin, right? Hebrews will say that our sin is deceitful. Like sin is, is inherently lying, lieful, right? Like there's a sinniness of sin. And we don't want to hear what God says about those things. We wish in many ways that God wouldn't have spoken on those topics. Yet the gospel, the gospel calls us to a place where where we cry out for more and more of God's word because it, it reveals, it exposes the attitudes and thoughts of our hearts because it's profitable for teaching and reproof, making the man of God wise for salvation. We have a tendency to cry out with God's people of old that he stops speaking, and yet the gospel tells us that we should ask for the word, the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know why that's in there? I, I think I have an idea why that's in there. Because the blood of Abel cries out for vengeance, for retribution. But Jesus' blood proclaims, it speaks a word of forgiveness and redemption in the face of our sin. And so we, as God's people, instead of crying out that God would stop speaking, should scream from the mountaintops, God, continue to use your word in our lives. The mountains tell us a lot about ourselves, that we ask for less of God's word instead of more. And the third thing that the mountains tell us about ourselves is that we tend to fall back into old habits. And really, this is kind of the, the better part of the whole passage and the better part of the whole book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is being written to a group of people who are, who are, are feeling the effects of, of of possibly persecution, but really, there isn't even that much language around persecution. They're probably just kind of like, where's Jesus at? Life is getting hard. B bills are piling up. You know, schedules are getting so big that one calendar can't hold all of them. Marriages are going to pot. Things don't look the way that, that Zion really looks in many ways, right? Things are getting hard. And so the people in Hebrews are kind of going back to an old way of thinking. And if there's anything we love is digging a good rut, right? Amen? Anybody like to dig a good rut? I really, I love to dig a good rut, right? Our hearts are inclined to return to the ruts we dig, right? 
And yet the, the, the message that the author of Hebrews is saying is you can't go back. For example, Moses, right? Moses is the mediator of the old covenant. Aaron is the high priest of the old covenant. The blood of, of bulls and rams are part of the old sacrifice. The temple is part of the old place where God um, comes and resides amongst his people. But, but the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us old habits die hard, but the gospel is more powerful to break the chains to those things. And therefore, because of the goodness of the gospel, because of the good news of the gospel, we are to run away from those old habits and embrace the new. Have you guys ever seen this show, uh, Kitchen Nightmares? Have you guys seen Kitchen Nightmares? Gordon Ramsay, he's a Brit. Wow, nobody. Oh, fine. Well, it's one of these shows where essentially Gordon Ramsay, this Brit, um, goes into like failing restaurants and he flips them in like three days, right? Which is just a like, that's probably impossible. But it's really fun to watch. And one of the reasons we love that show is because they do these kind of follow-up episodes, right? We love follow-up episodes. Maybe it's Biggest Loser or something like that. We love those follow-up episodes. And you know why we love those follow-up episodes? Where they go in with a TV crew, and they kind of, you know, a month or six months after or a year after, they see kind of how the people are doing. You know why we love those episodes? Besides the fact that, like, our hearts are twisted, is because we want to know that other people dig big ruts and it's hard for them to get out of them, right? That's why we love those shows. We want to know that other people struggle to change just as much as we do, and we want to point and laugh at them because we can do it on the TV and it's easier than doing it in our own lives. But the author of Hebrews is saying to us, don't go back to old habits. For Jesus is is the prophet of God who mediates a new covenant. For Jesus is the high priest who not only lays down his life for his people in prayer and and, and, in doing the sacrifices, but Jesus is actually the sacrifice and the high priest itself. Jesus is the temple of God, the place where God resides in both God and man. Jesus is the well that never, ever runs dry. Instead of going back to the old way of doing things, instead of going back to the old ways of living, the old ways of thinking, the old ways of, of relating and talking and speaking and parenting and, and doing school, Jesus, there's, there's a new way. And I am that new way. So these mountains tell us a lot about ourselves. And the last thing that these mountains tell us about is God himself. Mountains in the Bible, as I've said many times already, represent this place where God comes to speak to his people, where God comes to do business with his image bearers. It's a place where he does relationship. And, and oftentimes that's through speaking, right? We see Jesus going up a, a, a mountain to do his Sermon on the Mount, right? We see God going, or Moses going up the mountain to... Um, to talk with God in, in Sinai. We see Elijah going up the mountain to mess with the prophets of Baal, and God sp- speaks, or, you know, all these crazy things happen. It's awesome. Mountains are an important place in the history of God's people. And here, in this text, we kind of get the rhetorical climax and why these mountains are important. This is the rhetorical climax of the whole book of Hebrews. This is, this is everything to this point has been a march up the mountains to this passage in Hebrews. And it's actually connecting us all the way back to the bookend in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And I want to read that for you because it will really help, help us understand exactly what's going on here. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, I'm going to read 
for you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's Sinai. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, he being Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our passage this morning tells us a lot about God. But the most important thing it tells us about God is that these mountains represent his relationship with us through the person and the work of Jesus. Essentially through Jesus and through his gospel. These things are central to who God is. If God is a revealing God who reveals himself on these mountaintops, here is the pinnacle, the apex, the summit of who he is and what he's all about, what he desires, who he loves, how he loves, is in Jesus' work on the cross. The second mountain is a picture of that reality, a picture of, of what we live into, of what we are a part of. This is who we are. Now, the exodus is an interesting thing. The exodus is kind of that defining moment that gives um, Israel or God's people in the Old Testament their cultural kind of um, um, their cultural identity. It's the best way to say it. The Exodus, represented by Sinai, helps God's people in the Old Testament know exactly who they are. It defines them as a people. And we, similar to them, have many defining moments through our lives that, that shape us, that form us, right? Some are, are, are very positive, right? Maybe graduating from high school very soon or college. Amen? Yeah, some parents are like, yeah, amen to college being done. That's awesome. Um, maybe it's having kids. Maybe it's getting married. Maybe it's, it's um, some kind of success in your business. Maybe it's doing well on a test. Maybe it's, who knows? Fill in the blank. Good things shape us. Hard things shape us. It's Memorial Day. A loss of a loved one shapes us. The loss of many loved ones shapes us. The inability to have kids shapes us. The challenges we experience on a daily basis and over the course of a lifetime, they shape us. But the picture here of Jesus as central, as his, of his work as central to us as a people should be the defining moment in our lives. The thing that shapes everything we do. The thing that interprets our good times and our hard times. Central to who we are as God's people is this good news that God in Christ died to save a sinful people like us for him and his glory. Amen? Amen. The gospel is functionally central to us as a people because it defines who we are and what we're supposed to be all about. It's God's heartbeat, therefore it should be our heartbeat. So how shall we respond? How shall we respond to this gospel, this good news that this mountain represents, this, this wonderful party of life where, where we can live in light of the truth of the gospel? How should we respond? 
Look with me, if you will, verses 25 to 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When we come to the mountain of God and experience the goodness of who he is and what he has done, we have to respond. The gospel is inherently confrontational. A dead guy hanging on a tree for the sake of your sin forces you to do something, right? You can't just walk away and say, well, that was nice. You have to do something. It forces us to to respond. It, It forces us to kind of you know, wiggle in our seats. It, it makes our hearts squirm. And so we have to respond. And the, the author of Hebrews here is saying in verse 25, listen, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking. This is God speaking to us. Listen. Now what's hard about this is um, we have a temptation to not listen. <laughs> And, and the Bible has these, these big categories, these, these real big categories for kind of sin and salvation, right? These big buckets, if you will, for sin and salvation, that God's, God, God saves to the, outer, the utter, uttermost those who have sinned against him, but repent and believe, believe in him through faith, right? Big buckets. But Hebrews, Hebrews has this, this warning that kind of runs through the book, because, because there's, there's, um, as the author speaks to a group of people who have, who have tasted his goodness, as he speaks to a group of people who have, who have seen his glory and experienced the, the grace of a community of faith, if one of those people who has tasted and seen those things then says, you know what? No more of that. God says, I am still a consuming fire. And he calls us to come back to him. He says, listen. Listen as I reveal myself to you through my word. Listen. The second way that the gospel forces us to respond, excuse me, the gospel produces, produces gratefulness unlike any other. If you look at verse 28, it says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken kingdom that cannot be shaken. Here in verses 25 to 28, the author is now moving from Sinai, a mountain that was shook, right? Andrew read it earlier, the mountain shook, the earth shook, to Haggai, the prophet Haggai chapter 2, where Haggai talks about how how God shook the mountain at Sinai, but how God will, will turn the world upside down yet again. But in this turning of the world upside down, that which is is shakable will, will fall away, and that which is unshakable will remain. And what he's saying there is that this kingdom that we are now a part of, that's represented by this mountain of Zion, this living in light of the gospel as the community of faith, 
This kingdom, like the gospel, is unshakable because the God that we believe in is eternal. And so, as these other things shake off, right, as the dross is removed, that which is eternal will remain. Moses, Aaron, the temple, the sacrifices, those are shakable things that will be removed because Jesus is the one who's eternal. Therefore, his work will endure because he is rooted outside of time. And because we know this, we can be grateful that what we know is eternal, that what we've believed in, whom we have believed in, is eternal. We, we can rejoice with abounding gratefulness. And the third way we respond is that the gospel incites worshipful awe and reverence. Gratefulness and worship are like running partners. You always see them together, right? And in this context, it's, it's not really talking about kind of what we're even doing here per se. It's, it's talking at least about this. You know, when we come together and we gather and we sing praises to Jesus and, and we, we pray the word and we sing the word and we preach the word and, and, and this is good and important, necessary, but this is talking about a whole life that is devoted to bringing glory to this God of the gospel where every little piece of life somehow brings glory to our king where we let the gospel saturate every, every, I'll use a Thomism, every nook and cranny of our hearts. See what I did there? Tom again. This is what this is talking about, where the gospel incites worshipful awe and reverence. Friends, we worship a God who has made himself clearly known, who went up a mountain carrying a cross, received God's word and mediated that, that word of redemption, that word that cries louder than the blood of of Abel to his people. This is the God we worship. We are part of an unshakable kingdom. You are not at Sinai, but you are at Zion. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your, um, we ask for your blessing this weekend as we experience time with friends and loved ones, Lord, that we would be gospel people, that you would just help us to, to bring you glory in the conversations we have, in the food, in the drinks we have, in the things we do, in our work on Tuesday, in, in everything we do, Lord, we ask that you would, you would define us as a people by the good news of, of who you are and what you have done, that we might bring you glory. Lord, we love you. We praise your name. Amen.